Welcome back to Cleric Swear Ringmail. I've got a bit of a gorilla episode for you today. I am getting my head beat in at work, at home, and among other th and other things, and it's, don't have a lot of time. But I did manage to record something in the car, and I'll pass that out your way. This is in response to, uh, not not directly in response to, but thinking about uh, a plot episode. So what is plot? What role does it have in your game? In response to the recent Daniel Norton Bandit's Keep episode talking about the same thing. So without further ado, plot. What is it? Does it belong in your game? And what is the difference between it and narrative? And what is the difference between it and running a living world? What is plot? Plot, from the context of a consumer in media, is the direction in which the story goes as part of the consumption process. However, you come up against the problem in fantasy adventure games, you as a player or a referee are not the consumer. You are an active participant in its generation. The plot is not set. Therefore, if, as a uh, conditioned fantasy adventure gamer, I hear the word plot, it has a very different connotation from where you might hear it at a writer's workshop. If a player tells me the word plot, it implies that they are expecting a foregone conclusion. They are expecting a path that they can follow, which is fine, they're going to be disappointed because I don't run games that way, but that tells me something about their state of mind that influences how their perception of a successful game is going to be. If I hear it from a referee, then it implies the contrary. It implies that he has a direction that he wants to go. It implies that he has a railroad that he wants to follow, and he wants us to go in that direction. We're going to get from point A to point B. Uh, in the aforementioned Daniel episode, he mentioned the Dragonlance modules. The Dragonlance modules, while officially 1E products, mark the end of the old-school sandbox mentality, or at least the beginning of it. Because you have this mandatory NPC, this mandatory event. You are acting out a novel. Recently on social media, I saw a post pointing out that the Dragonlance novels actually came after the Dragonlance modules. I would contest this is not the case, because there are no Dragonlance modules, only novels that happen to take on the guise of stat books and supplements. But that's enough hate on Dragonlance. The important part is plot from the perspective of a player 
implies the expectation of a railroad, a predetermined destination, and from the perspective of a referee, implies a predetermined direction, a predetermined mode of success. Now, I could get into why I don't think this works in fantasy adventure gaming, uh, or honestly in role-playing games in general, but that's probably for another time. What is narrative? Moreover, what is the emergent narrative? The emergent narrative of a fantasy adventure game is the story you tell at Waffle House after the session is over. The sandbox is set, or the plot hooks have been laid, the party takes them, they go in a direction of their choosing, and the zipper zips. The threads of fate come together and events occur at the table. When those events occur, they set in time and the story tells itself. Fantasy adventure games and role-playing games in general are story-generating engines. It's a collaborative experience based on a framework of rules that establish the setting, the tone, and help to guide the end game, the solution to the story. So, by contrast, a normal piece of consumer media, a movie, a book, that's going to have an author or team of authors who determine what happens based on what would make the message work better or what would be more exciting or more appropriate to the story. Instead, in a role-playing or fantasy adventure game, we have a team of participants. The characters themselves are that team of writers. And when you complete this, when you complete your adventure, when you get back to town or when you die, the story is told. So, the difference here between narrative and emergent narrative is that as you are playing, the narrative is emerging. And I know I'm being a little tautology-y here because I'm saying thing is thing, but I'm trying to drive home that there is no obligation. You are not, as a player and as a character, bound to a direction or a mechanism. Instead, you are encouraged and really the foundation of the game is that you will explore your creativity to accomplish the end. Do I have instances where certain actions are prescribed? That can happen. So if I'm going to accept this guild charter, do I need to talk to the guild master? Yeah, that makes sense. However, that's not the norm. When you're in the dungeon, you're, you can break the door down, you can unlock the door with your specialist tools, you can go around the door and look for other entrances. You can do all manner of different things to get through that obstacle. And you're not actually needing to go in that door at all. You could just go the other way. And so the emergent narrative, you write it down as you go, and after the session is complete, that becomes history in the campaign. The past is only the past, and history 
becomes history only when the present finishes presenting. What is the living world? The living world is a, in and of itself, kind of a contradiction to the point. Am I allowed to have plots? Well, a plot occurs, but it occurs after the story is told. So, when my emergent narrative becomes my history and my session report becomes my story, then the plot becomes apparent. The plot occurred, and I can retell it at the Waffle House at 2 a.m. Similarly, do events string together to influence outcomes? Absolutely they do. And the, the living world benefits and runs off of those strings converging. A proper fantasy adventure game in the OSR style is going to have different factions with which to interact. In the dungeon, you should encounter certain non-hostile entities who are competing with, with other dungeon denizens. You can ally yourself, play off of each other. Part of the experience and part of player skill is building those relationships with denizens and knowing when to move and when to use them uh, and making sure that they don't do so in return. Similarly, in the overland, once you've approached the kind of hex crawl, the domain tier, or the warband roving tier, you're going to run into factions. You're going to run into uh, brigands in the woods that number in the hundreds. You're going to run into dragons that can only be taken down by entire scores of men. And these are forces of nature to be reckoned with and interacted with and played off against each other the same way it was in a dungeon, simply at a larger scale. However, these entities should not be static. Uh, if you have multiple player characters, multiple parties, potentially multiple domain level events going on, your players running those parties and domain level characters are not going to be static. You're going to be taking orders from them week by week so that they can move against each other or with each other or do stuff. Your lower level parties may take uh, missions from guilds or from patrons, whether those are players or non-player characters. They're going to, and those missions and those quests are going to fulfill goals. Even as far back as the original edition, if you come into the, say, domain of a magic user, you get near to his tower, he's going to cast a Gias on you. And uh, 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 Timorous Bushi Rob, if you're listening, you can correct my pronunciation. Anyway, but the point is, when doing those missions, when doing those quests, and when returning those MacGuffins, or when capturing those objectives, that should further the cause. That should influence the tide. Missions that you don't take may be taken by NPC parties or other player parties in a proper open table. When that occurs and when factions move against each other, if a party is obviously preferential towards one faction over the other, that faction may have an advantage. Other factions may try to recruit, other factions may try to attack, but in the absence of that succeeding, those other factions are going to fall behind. And you as the referee in a traditional game where you are controlling the external world, you're going to need to plan that out. There are a couple awesome resources around this, and a lot of them recommend keeping calendars. 
keep those calendars handy. Mark down when events are going to occur unless a party or patron gets involved and changes those events. Mark important festivals. Mark culminations of campaigns. Keep strict time. And when you do all of that, then it falls into place that your campaign seems full. You have things moving. Your quest giver isn't going to wait. If I have to, if I have to rescue the human sacrifice before the full moon and the full moon passes, then that sacrifice occurs and whatever eldritch evil was supposed to happen is going to happen. That, without that kind of timekeeping, without that kind of pressure, then the world has no depth. It's, a, like I said, a set piece, a cardboard cutout of what you need to happen. Rolling back time, thinking about some experience in uh, 3.5, there was an adventure a friend of mine was running, and he was talking about it to me, and the dragon that the party was assumed they were going to fight, in the module, it said this dragon is a bear of a fight and can very, very easily go wrong. Your party may TPK, and you may need to try again. Try again? That doesn't... That does not compute. This is a departure from the... This is a cardboard cutout dragon. This is a set piece. This is a gate that you have to go through. A uh, yard on your rail station... Or a rail station on your route to the next destination. That's not what you're going for. That is an example of lazy writing. That is an example of creating the world before you create the party. And... In a proper world, whether you beat the dragon or not will then set other events in motion. So, suffice to say, the concept of an open world means it's okay to have plots that are outside the scope of what the players are doing. Just because the players exist and are acting doesn't mean that time stops. They may choose to ignore certain hooks that you drop for them, but if those hooks have consequences, it's okay. Just like if I don't pay my taxes in real life, I'm going to have IRS agents at my door. So also, if you ignore the undead necromancer raising an army on the fringes of society, you're going to have to deal with that undead army instead of just the rogue necromancer. Did I contradict myself? I don't think so. Can an OSR-styled fantasy adventure campaign have a plot? Yes, it can. You can have multiple plots. You can have the plot that occurs after my party has delved a dungeon or two, hired some hirelings, built a warband, moved out and built a town. That's a plot, but it happened in the past. Similarly, you can have a plot where uh, warring nobles try to kidnap, say, uh, merchants between the two rival kingdoms to strangle off certain items from being accessible to their allies. That is absolutely a plot. That can be a planned event. However, it only occurs if it goes unmolested. Now, you will you introduce dice to it? I would. I would definitely have a chance of success, uh, but won't go into that. The important part is, 
if the players get involved, they're going to change the outcome. So you have a loose, this is where this character wants to go, but it doesn't get set in stone until it happens. And them is my two cents. Hopefully that makes sense to everybody listening. And I don't think I've trod too much new ground, but I do think that I've uh, kind of clarified the position I find myself in. So to respond directly to the our plots bad, don't have to be. Delve on everybody, delve on. about the 16 minute mark so I'll dive in and do a couple call-ins I have a massive backlog of call-ins uh, two three hours of them and I'm gonna try to put them out slowly over time we'll see how that goes but for now we have James of Mindweave RPG similarly to the caller who Ray the rust monster Otis who talked about having more sliders I feel like now that we've opened this discussion of little rotating burger dials Delicious sliders. Unless it's like White Castle, because I'm pretty sure that's iron rations. Uh, that that I want to weigh in on this. I was thinking about doing it, and I didn't get around to it. But there's a useful concept in kind of the game design community of the aesthetics of play. And they design they divide out the styles that games have into eight styles, and most games will have two or three. And role-playing games are really very broad, and they end up having... I think six of these styles really come out in a, in a big way, but the other two, not so much. And so the first of those is the uh, fantasy aesthetic, where the players are playing the game as a way to make believe that they're someone else. And so you can see that come through, particularly in the role-playing, right? Your role-playing slider fits with the fantasy aesthetic quite a bit. The second aesthetic that I heavily apply to role-playing games is the narrative aesthetic, which is is the game as drama. And so this is players who, who like the, the narrative aesthetic are going to be very invested in the story and, and how things are evolving over time. Even in an OSR game, you could have um, this, this aesthetic be satisfied by engaging with the story of the evolving narrative of the party, even if there's not a pre-planned narrative. The third is expression, and, and they call this um, game as self-discovery. This is also going to be part of that role-playing slider you talked about, where a player is primarily playing the game to discover things about themselves by playing another person and, and um, trying to have experiences that they wouldn't normally have in real life. I think I've said before, I'm not sure, but I'll say it now just in case, I don't think that OSR gaming is necessarily incompatible with uh, narrative. It merely requires that the narrative be occurring within the player agency and that the meta plot overarching does not infringe on the core loop of what you expect to do. Aha, that was recorded in September. I am glad I'm being consistent. So that is to say, stories and plots can go on all the time. Players can interact with them or not, but it's all about having that organic world that places the emphasis on what the players are doing and how they're reacting. Um, regarding finding yourself, um, I was about to make fun of you for saying that because that's what you know I'm supposed to do as an OSR pundit, but the uh, important part 
that comes up to an idea that I've kind of floated but never acted on, emergent backstory. You're allowed a paragraph, well, not a paragraph, that's way too much, a bullet point per level, and you can fill it in as you go. Did your character have amnesia, or is it a way just to tie yourself into the world going backwards? Typically, your backstory is going to be the experiences you've had up until your current level, but why not have the uh, memento moment? We'll, f we'll have to uh, suggest this in one of those indie jam spaces and see if someone who has more free time than I can uh, will put together a game to uh, put it together. Uh, the fourth aesthetic that really applies to role-playing games is Discovery. This is the game is Uncharted Territory. So this really speaks to the, the world-building slider that came up in the last episode, that the players who get really invested in the world are, are looking to, to discover the mysteries of the place. Um, fifth challenge, this speaks to the player skill that we've been talking about and, and system mastery, but this also includes that, that puzzle enjoyment, um, to a large extent, puzzles can of sort of course satisfy all of these aesthetics, but, but puzzles primarily speak to that challenge element. And then finally, the sixth one that really applies is fellowship. The game is a social framework where we're all getting together to play and, and there are many players who come to be with other people primarily. The last two are sensation and submission, and those really don't come through so well in a role-playing game, but they can be possible. Yep. I uh, don't think I have a lot of RPG experience with the sensation and submission stuff either, though I hear Grim Jim runs a tight game uh, if you want to look him up and uh, subscribe on in, and that'll take care of those urges right, right quick. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for the insight. That's some interesting stuff that I had never heard before. Despite my interest in game design, I typically have not been involved in any game design communities. And that, that I didn't think that, I didn't realize there was so much of a science behind it. And that's something I can look into, something I can look up. And good uh, good food for thought to bring to uh, the, the, our communal listeners. <laughs> Again, thank you for calling in. It's a... Good, good topic. We should probably give it its own episode. Hey, Taylor, there was too much goodness in your episode on why guilds are bad. Good clickbaity title when it should have been why adventuring guilds are bad, but I'll forgive you. Anyway... There's so much goodness chalked in that episode that I had to stop it. I'm going to have to rewind it because I couldn't remember it all to call in at the end of the episode. Great job in stuffing it all in there. I am, without question, an expert at stuffing it in. So, as far as the main event there, adventuring guilds... Yeah, I'm not a fan of adventuring guilds at all. I'm with you on that 100%. I initially went into the podcast thinking, is he going to say thieves' guilds are bad? Is he going to say assassins' guilds are bad? We're going to have to go to blows over this. But you're not saying that. And, you, you know, as an AD&D guy, I, I'm a big fan of having guilds for the classes, especially the classes that need guilds to train them and things like that. I think you definitely want to have thief guilds in your in your cities, and you're going to have, you know, if you're playing in a game with assassins, you're going to have those assassins guilds and all those kind of things. But, yeah, adventuring guilds that have big big meeting halls, and they can conveniently stay in them and store their stuff in them and borrow equipment from them and get knowledge from them and, you know, home ba extra home bases and 
I'm with you on all that stuff. Truthfully, it's less about guilds as adventuring guilds and more about guilds as factions versus guilds as cop-outs. So a thieves guild is fine if, you know, you treat it like the mafia. There's a couple different rackets. They're in competition. If you have to, if you want to be involved with them, you have to earn it. If you don't earn it, then they'll cap you. They'll break your kneecaps, that kind of stuff. So that's different. That's a faction that you can play off of each other. And that's taking a concept of the dungeon delve and applying it to the urban crawl. By, con- by uh, comparison, <clears throat> if you have say the mages guild and all that is is a bed a free research station and easy access to a mentor that's a cop-out i would much rather have an adventure to get to that training point than i would to uh you know just have it handed to me and treat it as a simple time tax but that's just me we can uh, we can blow or not blow at discretion I, I think the, the guilds should be very separated from each other. They're technically normally not going to work with each other at all. The different guilds are going to do different things. And, and Now, I like the idea of each class having guilds. I mean, effectively, the clerics would be their church, right? The paladins would be their church. Um, although the paladins is an odd choice, you, you know, because when you look at it, you know, you know they're going to have a combination of things they're going to go to to... You know, we were talking last night in a podcast that's going to be released on the 18th of November for Cerebrivore. Hee <laughs> Oops. Old messages. That, you know, rangers, to some degree, are going to go the druids, right? And because and there's that, that kind of alliance, it, it, to some degree, with the rangers and the druids. You know, both being bloodthirsty, the druids doing human sacrifices, and the, the rangers thirsting for the blood of humanoids, according to the books of AD&D. Man, I love AD&D. Which is why, you know, half-elves can be rangers because they're half-human and humans are bloodthirsty, but other elves can't be rangers. Would a half-elf eating a full human be half-cannibal? Inquiring minds want to know. Anyway, I'm getting off the point. But my point is I like guilds, individual guilds for different classes that do different things and maybe offer certain advantages for those classes or let them do things. But 100%, they're not banks. They're not motels. They're not, you know, they're, they're places to go train. I really like the troop-style play and the play offered by guilds. I don't like the idea of dropping to the silver economy or something like that. I like just playing the game as it is because I'm an old fuddy-duddy. But I'll leave you another message on the other things because I need to go re-listen to James's excellent call about GM metagaming because I have thoughts. As far as DM metagaming and adversarial play, you know, where you're using knowledge of, oh, the players used all their spell slots and things like that, yeah, definitely that's not going to be a good thing for the game. Now, like you say, maybe... You're playing a DM versus player adversarial game on purpose. Maybe you're doing a challenging. You're you know you're playing D D and D in hero quest mode, right? In in board game mode, and it, so if you're going to play it in board game mode, then I think that'd be an interesting experiment. I wouldn't mind trying that sometime. Obviously, if you're doing that, you need to clamp down on the DM more, like modern games do, because you you, you do need to tie the DM's hands a little bit so he doesn't just whip a dragon out at an opportune time. So you need to preset the pieces the DM gets to play with if you're playing in an adversarial game. But that's a whole other topic.
Um, I, I think that could be interesting, though. But you, you would have to get closer to that balanced encounter, I think, to play a true DM versus players game. I think it could be a lot of fun. Again, effectively, at that point, you're playing a board game, right? But that's not really what we're talking about here, because I, I, I don't think. I think James's point is more what you're saying, where the party shows up and then they all jump on the specialty priest. All the monsters attack them. Now, in some cases, if you have an obvious spellcaster or an obvious priest, maybe that would be the logical target, right? Because they see them as that threat. You, you know, if the, what do we do? What's the party do when you show up with, you know, a bunch of orcs and, and then there's a, a shaman with them? Well, you, I know I always target shaman, right? Because I don't want them getting a spell off. So it's understandable for monsters to, to target obvious spellcasters. But the question is, was that specialty priest an obvious spellcaster where they were in armor that didn't have a big holy symbol on it? And you know what I mean? So there's, you, you need to, like you say, it's contextual. Um, I, I don't think monsters attacking spellcasters first is necessarily adversarial play. That's smart play on the monsters case because they don't want that spell getting off. Because even clerics have a ton of nasty spells. I mean, there's a reason evil high priests are the bad guy or the big bad in the early games because they'll mess you up. Um, but yeah, a DM 100% should not be using. Oh, he's almost dead, or you, you know, he's out of his spells, or I know that he his weapon can't hurt me, so I'm just going to attack him and avoid this one whose weapon can hurt me when nobody struck the monster yet. Yeah, I mean, obviously. Uh, to me, all those things are bad GM metagaming. Um, okay, let's get on to the last point. Absolutely. There is a difference between adversarial play and smart play. And uh, there is a place and a time, did someone say tournament, for intentional adversarial play. Okay, as far as the last bit that James mentioned about player knowledge and specifically the idea of knowing what's happening in a different part of the world that they're not in. You know, the, the players inside the dungeon knowing what's happening outside the dungeon. Oh, the horses are being attacked. We have to leave, right? Yeah, 100%. That's player meta knowledge. It's bad bad play. Um, no question about it. I'm with you. Um, I, I mean, if, you know, if the... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't give you any excuses why that would be okay. So, yeah, I'm, I'm 100% with that. Although I do think having... The, the dog solution for real-life play, if you put real players in separate rooms, is a good answer to that. Anyway, great episode. Keep up the great work. I'm not sure that this episode is doing a whole lot to help you get your OSR October call-in show out, since I've just given you a buttload of call-ins. But I do appreciate the fodder. I appreciate you making me think. And I appreciate you, man. Keep podcasting. Take care of yourself. And I'll talk to you soon. I will do my best. Thank you for listening, thank you for calling, and thank you for inundating my inbox. Good to hear your voice, Jason. As far as the rumor bit going, deciding when it's, you know, when it's a true rumor, when it's not, I think that's going to fall down to GM style. If For me, even though I'm a fairly light prep DM, I tend to make those decisions before I put out that information. So... If I'm putting something out, I know whether it's, you know, true, false, or partially true. But that said, you know, some people are really improvisational, and, and they like to figure it out as they go. 
We call those people story gamers. And I don't necessarily know that's a wrong way to play. It is. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to say it's that's... I, I think where it becomes wrong is where the DM does that specifically based on the strengths of the party at that time and where the party is at that time. I, I think if they're waiting to decide it, depending on what's happening in their world at that time, that's legit. But if they're, but if they're waiting to decide if it's true or not, you, you know, say the rumor is about a monster's weakness and the party encounters the monster, but the party's down to a quarter hit points and they decide that weakness is true just so the party can win the battle, I think that's DM metagaming and that's bad. But if they're waiting to decide if, you know, this certain tribe lives in these mountains and they're waiting to see what else has happened in the world in case they want to introduce that tribe earlier, I, you know, to decide if that rumor is true, I think that's okay. So I think it's kind of situational. In these Agreed. And interestingly enough, based on a response to Redcaps on the same subject and expounding on what the caller meant, that is one of the things he had in mind when he made the call. I had taken it a different direction. So y'all are just going to have to listen to future call-in episodes to pick up on uh, what Kevin said. <laughs> I could see that. That's a fair, uh, that's a fair assessment. And there you have it. Two callers, several call-ins relative to old episodes and new, and a promise that I will get some more stuff out to you. I will go through the call-in episode, but thinking about my original plan to release it all at once, like I said, that call-in episode would have taken two and a half hours. So, uh, knowing that I can only edit about half an hour at a time, and knowing that a lot of people enjoy the shorter episode length, I'm going to try to chunk it up. So let me know what you think. Let me know if I'm doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And either way, in the meantime, delve on. The Clear Square Ring Mail podcast is an independently owned and operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This license, which is kind of like Creative Commons, except f- licensing. Segments recorded within a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device in conjunction with local vehicular safety legislation. The music for the Clear Square Ring Mail podcast is Gold Coffee by Michael Ramirez C, retrieved from Mixkit.co and used under the Mixkit royalty-free music license. Sound effects used in the Clear Square Ring Mail podcast are also retrieved from Mixkit.co and used in accordance with the Mixkit-free sound effects license. Clear Square Ring Mail does not ascribe to nor endorse views or opinions expressed by call-ins, guests, or even the host, unless you think they're awesome, and thus does not assume any liability regarding the consumption or distribution of this podcast. By listening to the Clear Square Ring Mail podcast, you agree to these provided terms. Parties with questions regarding these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to reach out to Clear Clear Square email at the prescribed methods provided on the Clear Square email blog. Parties dissatisfied with these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to go suck an egg.